and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 119, Mr. Harding Goes to Washington and Dies. The second term of Woodrow Wilson's presidency had turned out to be one of the most tumultuous in living memory. It had started with the promise of the United States remaining above the fray of World War I and ended it with the country being perceived as the hopeful leader of the global community, with all the burdens that came with it, of course. The economic boom caused by European demand for goods turned into a nightmare, though, as inflation wrecked the purchasing power of normal Americans. The paranoia of wartime propaganda and the social changes caused by the great migration of African-American citizens helped induce all the panics I described last week. What the average American was looking for wasn't their country becoming a global hegemon. They just wanted things to go back to the way they had been before the war. They wanted peace and stability, with a steady prosperity that wouldn't upset the greater economy. They wanted a return to normalcy. That was going to be the mantra of the early 20s, and the Republican Party was eager to cater to that wish. While there were progressives in both parties, under Wilson, the idea of enhanced government powers utilized to reshape society was most associated with Democrats, and a traumatized America was now having second thoughts about large-scale national reform. The Republicans offered a vision of disinterested government and pro-business policies that would form the core of its platform for the next century, all the way to present day, really. Although the wartime controls and regulations under Wilson proved to be temporary, and their rollback soon followed once peacetime started, the resentments they caused lingered. And for voters looking to turn away from such controls, they naturally flocked to the Republican Party. For our purposes with this show, the reason why the ascendancy of the Republicans for the next decade is so important is because under their leadership, the U.S. turned away from an active leadership role in the world. I've banged the drum before that the United States was the only great power with strength left in it by 1920 and was the only conceivable actor that could have created an early, lasting settlement of peace through its own influence. Most everyone on the political spectrum of America understood that, and it wasn't just Wilson and his supporters that thought that way. However, Republicans by and large didn't see such responsibility as America's mission. And given the devastation in Europe, they didn't foresee a new conflict as likely. The Europeans could muddle on without America and figure things out on their own. Which goes back to what I said at the start of the series, that America's role in destabilizing the world had more to do with what it didn't do than what it did do. And the American people were by and large on board with the uh, more modest national mission. This desire was compounded by continued economic news, most all of it bad. Yes, even with all the chaos of 1919, the bad news kept rolling in going into 1920. I cannot emphasize enough how shell-shocked Americans were at the start of the 20s, and how the resulting recovery blinded them to the dangers that would ruin the country at the end of the decade. I've talked a lot about the inflation that gripped the country since 1915. The government wasn't totally blind to what was going on, but with the demands of wartime, they couldn't really do anything about it. Industries needed to produce— Money was needed to pay for it. A lot of money in the economy meant prices increased. Peacetime, though, presented an opportunity to put the house in order. Unlike the Europeans, the U.S. had large enough gold reserves to stay in the gold standard system, even as more dollars were constantly being pumped into the economy. This was a close-run thing, though, and by January 1920, the U.S. faced the decision of either tackling inflation or leaving the gold standard. The Federal Reserve, just six years old at this point, opted for the former. 
They raised interest rates from 4.25% to 4.75% at the start of January 1920. Nothing too big there. But then just three weeks later, the Fed decided to go into battle mode and raised it to 6%, and by the middle of the year, it hit 7 The impact of raising interest rates was to make borrowing more expensive and to limit the money supply, ergo curbing inflation. Less money means things cost less as the buying power of a single dollar is greater due to their scarcity. Which, hey, good job, this worked as intended, and inflation was curbed by mid-year. Deflation also isn't a friend of a growing economy or to commodity producers. Just like the UK and Japan, the US was hit with a devastating recession to kick off the 20s. With American exports getting more expensive, manufacturers cut payroll, causing unemployment to hit 20% by the start of 1921, which you already know about returning veterans getting mad that they couldn't find work, and also, you know, in addition to everybody else getting mad that they couldn't find work either. And this just made things a whole lot worse. Agricultural prices collapsed across the board as well, setting off a long depression for the country's farmers that wouldn't be alleviated during the Roaring Twenties and would only get worse with the future Great Depression. Farmers turned against Wilson and any Democrat that was seen to share similar policies as he did. Many radicalized and joined in with the Ku Klux Klan, and others took to forming vigilante groups who would attack buyers who didn't offer fair prices for their crops. Internationally, the financial impact was devastating. American loans dried up just as Europe was trying to put itself back together. And part of the recession suffered elsewhere, again, looking at the UK and Japan, were caused by America shutting off the money supply. With cheap loans no longer on the menu, national governments had to cut back spending and raise their own interest rates, which set off recessions around the globe. The first six months of the 1920s was the last phase of the Wilsonian crisis in America. And while politically, the Democrats were probably already beaten by the end of 1919, the recession of 1920 kept that party's failures in the national consciousness as that year's presidential campaign got underway. But even with the political winds at their backs, what Republicans needed was a champion, someone to embody the ideal of humility to counter the high-handed Wilson years. They found it in Ohio's own Warren G. Harding. Harding was not exactly an accomplished man. He hailed from the small town of Marion, which proved to be a political boon, as coming from a smaller town was a plus with voters. That small town life was idolized, and there was a politician that came from what might well have been a model community. His upbringing was remarkable only in that there was a constant local rumor that on account of his family's complexion that he had an African-American ancestor somewhere in his family tree. This resulted in the family being looked down upon, but instead of Harding becoming bitter, he instead opted to throw his energies into being the most agreeable and outgoing man he could possibly be. He joined up with every social club in town, including learning the clarinet to be part of the town band. His only rejection came from the Masons, on account of the rumors of his ancestry. But once he became a presidential nominee, he secured a spot in the only group that had ever spurned him. His agreeable nature resulted in an unhappy marriage, as he never very much liked his wife, but she very much was into him. She simply kept demanding his attentions until finally they became a couple, and, well, Harding's nature prevented him from saying no. It did not help at all that Harding was considered handsome, being kind of a stocky but powerfully built type of fellow, and his personality was perpetually extroverted. His affairs would be constant, and his apparent sex addiction likely contributed to the heart failure that killed him. His people skills were such that he rose up the political ladder quickly, 
with his speeches being devoid of substantial content, but always leaving crowds with the feeling that they listened to their kind of guy. He eventually rose to become one of Ohio's senators, and he quickly became popular with the D.C. crowd. He was also a historically lazy senator, introducing no important legislation and actively avoiding the Senate chamber when something controversial was on the docket. While he had the personal touchdown pat, it didn't look like he was presidential material. But this was an age where backroom politics still mattered, and brings us to the 1920 Republican convention in Chicago. It convened on June 8th when the city was in the throes of a summer heat wave, which is going to be a reoccurring theme with conventions in this period. For days, party delegates tried and failed to decide over two leading candidates, with no single one getting enough support to become the party's presidential nominee. Important thing to note about American politics in this age, the political parties didn't have many election primaries held over the course of months to decide a presidential nominee. What would happen is party leadership and carefully chosen delegates from the branches of each state would gather for a convention, whereupon they'd debate and hold polls from among the delegates. Powerful state bosses often picked out the delegates, so there was an element of conspiracy in play as boosters for each candidate tried to induce entire blocks of said delegates through those bosses. Votes were often deadlocked, with no one candidate getting enough delegates to earn the party's nomination, which eventually led to party bosses settling on a compromise candidate. People were packed together in a crowded, smoky convention hall for days on end, all the while being supplied with supposedly banned liquor, this being the age of prohibition in the U.S. By the 12th, people were dehydrated, hungover, and completely sick of each other. The frontrunners weren't going to cut it, so a compromise candidate was needed. At first, it didn't appear as if Harding would be supported in the back rooms either. Henry Cabot Lodge, the Senate Majority Leader and Chairman of the convention, knew damn well how capable Harding was and didn't want him anywhere near the nomination. Too bad for the Republican Party leaders, the rank and file took matters into their own hands. Harding's supporters started spreading rumors that he had proper support among the leadership, and almost overnight he had overwhelming support among the delegates themselves. When Lodge tried to position a capable moderate as the vice presidential pick, the rank and file rejected that and selected the deeply conservative Calvin Coolidge, who you'll remember from last week as earning his national profile by being anti-union. The party faithful had every reason to push as hard as they could, too. Popular support in the country appeared to be with them, and the Democrats were in disarray. Speaking of which, the Democrats' national convention was more of a funeral dirge. Attorney General Palmer had gone as hard as he had in 1919, early 1920, based on showing the nation he could handle a crisis. But his overreach had blown up in his face. Wilson himself had the delusional notion that, despite being badly incapacitated by a stroke, that the party would go out on a limb and break with all prior tradition and nominate him for a third term. Yes, he had that much of a high opinion of himself. Eventually, the nomination went to James Cox, like Harding, also from Ohio, but unlike Harding, a totally bland figure. His running mate was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, yes, FDR himself. But don't get excited. This election was nothing to write home about unless you enjoy blowouts. The Democrats followed Wilson's lead and included joining the League of Nations as a major issue, which most Americans had lost interest in. The Democrats were also divided against themselves based on region, and enthusiasm was low. Cox campaigned across the nation. Harding stayed at home in Marion, Ohio. 
The only thing that worried Republicans was an article raising the question of Harding's potential African ancestry in October 1920, but the public just ignored it. Neither Harding's indifference to campaigning or questions of his background mattered. He won 60% of the vote compared to Cox's 34 and cruised to victory. A do-nothing was headed to the White House, and that's exactly what the nation was asking for. The defeat was devastating for the Democrats. The party had been hollowed out, but the divisions were somehow made worse. The northern wing of the party became ever more dominated by immigrants or descendants of immigrants that kept to progressive views, while the southern wing came under the influence of the Klan, which, you know, they took a dim view to foreigners and Catholics and, well, most everything else for that matter. And that wasn't the lowest point for the party either. While the 1920 Democratic Convention had the appearance of a funeral, the 1924 one was going to be more of a prison riot. But the man of the hour was undoubtedly Harding. He would not be a great president. In fact, he was just as passive as he had always been in life and found the demands of the office an unappealing burden. He did, though, appoint three notable figures to his cabinet that are important for us. The first we're already familiar with, Secretary of State Evans Hughes, who would spearhead the Harding administration's great piece of diplomacy, the Washington Naval Treaties. The second was the Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon. Mellon was the third richest man in the nation, and every bit the Monopoly guy, in all but the mustache and monocle. He felt the government's purpose was to facilitate unimpeded commerce, which is to say it should create the infrastructure and financial backing to be used by the biggest possible businesses. He despised the taxes of the Wilson years, war or no war, and openly advertised that he was taking the position to dismantle whatever he could of the government's oversight of the economy. The third big figure was Herbert Hoover, who got the Secretary of Commerce spot. Hoover was bitterly disappointed that he didn't get either of the aforementioned offices, but he was considered too progressive and interventionist for the larger party, and Harding was showing some uncharacteristic spine in giving him a job at all. The Commerce seat was a new one, established only in 1913 and without a clear portfolio. Hoover, though, made the best of things, and given he was, like, one of three competent people in the cabinet, his own personal energy went a long way. He focused on creating the conditions for a stable economic recovery. His tireless work ethic was appreciated by Harding, who was otherwise swamped with the scandals of his other appointees. The scandals themselves don't have a lot of bearing on this podcast, but they show off just how much of a cesspool the Harding administration was, so I'm going to touch on some of them real quick. The big appointments went to prominent men in the Republican Party, but a lot of the secondary postings went to Harding's friends from back in Ohio, which constituted the president's Ohio gang. Operating from a K Street townhouse just down the road from the White House, the group would set up kickback schemes, sell offices to the highest bidder, and run interference on the behalf of bootleggers. Normal corruption stuff, except these guys engaged in it relentlessly and out in the open. They themselves were protected by the Attorney General Harry Doherty, who acted as a patron of all the under-the-table activity going on. Even if he wasn't involved in a scheme, he was kept in the loop and usually provided a cut of any proceeds, a notable example being the disappearance of German money seized upon America's entry into World War I. In another instance, the leader of the Veterans Bureau sold off $7 million worth of medical supplies to private contractors for a mere 600000 with a hefty slice of that money being sent back to him. The mismanagement in the Veterans Bureau especially turned into a personal embarrassment for Harding, as he had made a promise to attend to the health and happy living of the soldiers who had fought Woodrow Wilson's war. The Interior Secretary, Albert Fall, would spark the most infamous case of graft, though. 
the Navy was demanding new sources of fuel oil as that arm of the military converted away from coal. And wouldn't you know it, two promising deposits were on hand in Southern California and in Wyoming. Fall awarded Elk Hills, the California prospect, for a dollar sign bag with 100 grand in it. The Wyoming patch, called Teapot Dome, he sold for 270000 in bonds and 30000 in cash. The lands were valued in the hundreds of millions, though, given the presence of the oil, but they had been sold off for less than pennies on the dollar. He would get caught becoming the first cabinet secretary to be imprisoned, although in this case only for a single year. This last batch of scandals only broke in late 1923, after Harding had already died in office, and the Republican Party used it as a device to make a clean break with his administration, blaming all the failures of oversight on the deceased Harding and not anything indicative of the party as a whole. And given how his focus during the 1920 presidential campaign was on domestic matters, it's notable that a lot of Harding's successes came from diplomacy. This might be because the constant problems created by the Ohio gang didn't extend to the State Department. Secretary Hughes was progressive when compared to the direction the Republicans were headed in and even supported joining the League of Nations, the only major stance that Harding had to overrule him on. Hughes did secure a separate peace treaty with Germany, finally, in July 1921. Harding received the resolution to end hostilities on the golf course after it had passed Congress. He signed off on it, then went right back to the course. Hughes notably reversed Wilson's policies of intervention in the Western Hemisphere, and America swung towards a more hands-off stance in relations to its neighbors, which I'm sure was welcome news to them. As I covered in episode 99, Hoover pushed through aid to Bolshevik Russia, which, while it didn't create friendly relations, it did save millions of people. The crown jewel of Harding's forward achievements, though, were the Washington Naval Treaties. It might seem a little odd that someone so apprehensive towards foreign entanglements would endorse such a far-reaching set of agreements, but there was a certain logic to it. While most of the American people were okay with the United States not joining the League of Nations, something had to be done in regards to arms control, and Secretary Hughes was able to deliver an agreement that made the U.S. officially one of the two greatest naval powers in the world and bound the upstart Japanese empire to a new international system predicated on non-aggression. It was overwhelmingly popular both at home and abroad, and meant Harding could rest easy knowing he had played peacemaker on the world stage without committing to any of Wilson's harebrained schemes. The most pressing problem, though, was, as always, the economy. The Wilson administration's efforts to curb inflation had worked, but the cost of triggering the 1920 recession. Luckily for Harding, the woes of Europe played right into his hands. Inflation was still out of control over there, and as such, people who owned gold were moving it en masse to the United States. The Federal Reserve had implemented deflationary policies for the purpose of remaining on the gold standard, which meant that dollars could in theory be reliably exchanged for gold. With more gold entering American banks than ever before, that meant the Federal Reserve could do a 180 and start putting more money into the economy again. The perception of the dollar strength would not be affected, as with more gold on hand, a much larger amount of money could be backed by it. It was bad for those Europeans aspiring to get back onto the gold standard themselves, as they had a lot less of the shiny stuff to work with to back their own currencies. Hoover also worked diligently as Commerce Secretary to grow the economy, within the restrictions of his own conservative mentality, of course. He created offices in the hardest-hit states to coordinate and find people work. He pushed local governments to start spending on public works projects, arguing that with prices on building materials down lower than they had been in years, that it was an opportune time to upgrade the nation's infrastructure, while simultaneously creating new jobs. 
He declined to push for expanded spending at the federal level on account of local authorities knowing better of what needed to be attended to, and also at that point they were the main source of infrastructure spending anyway. Avoiding an expansion of the federal government was the order of the day. Andrew Mellon, for his part, pushed for tax cuts across the board from the Treasury Department. He argued that if the wealthy had more money, they'd invested in productive enterprises, which would increase the overall tax base enough to cover the loss of direct revenue, which was an argument as old as time and something that he and Hoover clashed over several times. Hoover argued that the upper classes should shoulder their share of the burden and that relatively higher taxes on the rich would curb their already disproportionate influence over politics and society. To Mellon, increasing their influence was half the point. And by the early 20s, the Republicans and Harding were inclined to back Mellon, who got his tax cuts. This is especially important because this released large amounts of money back into private hands, where for the rest of the decade, it was free to be speculated with, and in no small part contributed to the bubble that would disastrously pop in 1929. Other problems proved intractable. After modest progress and not having a major race riot, Tulsa set the days-since clock right back to zero in historically awful fashion. On June 1, 1921, the Tulsa suburb of Greenwood was burned to the ground. The area had attracted black migrants on account of the oil fields discovered there, and Greenwood, in a happier timeline, could have been considered a model for how blacks in America could prosper given half a chance. The town of 15,000 was modern and neatly arranged in the emerging suburban American style, and was populated by a professional class that included teachers, doctors, lawyers, that sort of thing. But then, a black man bumped into a white elevator operator. She claimed that the man attacked her. He maintained that he had just lost his balance. A white mob more interested in wiping out an emerging symbol of black prosperity than in the incident itself quickly formed. They stormed Greenwood, aided by local police agencies, one of which deputized 500 white men for the express purpose of attacking any and all African Americans they could find. It was a nightmare. The mob was so thorough in its burning of 1,200 black homes that it could only be assumed that the whole thing was planned out in advance. Trains were blocked from entering Tulsa, and telephone and telegraph lines were cut to prevent word from getting out. By the time the National Guard arrived, Greenwood was gone. Hundreds died and thousands were injured although Tulsa officials tried to minimize the death toll at merely 36. The massacre provided a fresh shock to African-American intellectuals, some of whom turned away from plans of liberation that involved the assistance of whites. Later in the year, Harding would publicly speak on the issue of race relations and said that the status quo could not go on, with 10% of the population locked out of access to political power in the nation. The words were shocking to white audiences, but Harding being Harding, he didn't have the stomach for a fight about it. When an anti-lynching bill was presented before Congress, Harding didn't push back when Southern politicians scuttled it. Momentarily, black leaders cheered Harding on, but when it became obvious that all he had to offer were words, their enthusiasm dampened considerably. There was talk of abandoning the Republicans, but the Democrats were in the midst of being partially hijacked by the Klan, so there wasn't anywhere to really go politically. Meanwhile, on immigration, Harding was an enthusiastic conservative. Congress was already done passing the Emergency Immigration Act by the time he reached office. As I mentioned before, immigrants from outside Northwestern Europe had long been a bone of contention in America, and the World War I years saw their incoming numbers plummet as a result of transportation restrictions. But the war eventually ended, and immigration numbers almost instantly surged back to their pre-war figures. For a nativist population already at the end of their nerves, 
The resumption was something that they couldn't bear. The act, enthusiastically supported by Harding, set quotas that cut immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe by 90%, while allowing Northwest Europeans continued access to America. Despite his short stay in the White House, Harding would imprint a conservative bent across the nation that would hold until the Great Depression. And I say that his stay was short because he wasn't long for the world. Harding might have had a weak personality when it came to denying people around him, but he wasn't blind to their failings. He recognized their corruption and was personally offended that his friends so brazenly betrayed his trust and took advantage of his kindness. He was reported to have chewed out his subordinates in fits of rage and basically let men like Hoover, Hughes, and Mellon do as they wanted since he could actually trust them not to sell their departments off. By the spring of 1923, Harding was personally exhausted and had done a speed run of rapid aging that all presidents endure. He set off on a trip to Alaska at the very end of June, a quasi-vacation that he planned to turn into a general tour of the West, wherein he'd be able to stop in and make himself visible to the American people, which was the part of the job he was good at and actually enjoyed. The vacation was tense, with the various cabinet members who made the trip out to stay with him on various legs of the journey reporting him descending into a nervous wreck. He complained of his worthless friends and the burdens of the office that he realized he was unsuited for. It was during the second half of the trip that his health finally really began to fail him. He started complaining of chest pains, which were brushed off as digestive issues. While the symptoms in actuality had to do with the heart, doctors back then didn't have as great an understanding of how heart attacks came about. In addition, it was believed that he had also contracted pneumonia during the trip as well. Harding was making his way back down south from Alaska and was going to stop over in Portland when his aides decided that enough was enough. They opted to go straight for San Francisco and put him on bed rest. For days, he appeared to improve before his body gave out on August 2nd, 1923. His passing was met with widespread mourning with the people as he was still highly popular and also with relief by leaders of the Republican Party. With Harding gone, the political embarrassments he installed could be swept away. Harding's replacement, Calvin Coolidge, would prove to be an even better champion of the Republican agenda, namely keeping government influence over the economy small and continuing an insular foreign policy. The Coolidge years were some of the most inert in American political history, so next week, look forward to a little less politics and more to the economic boom of the 20s and it being the setup to the collapse of 1929. Because, seriously, the Coolidge era of politics is just beyond the pale boring, and coming from me, that's saying a lot. So, join me then, and as always... Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.